Episode 19 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 4.4, Battle Analysis, Tremendous Battle of the Wilderness, A Fight for the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and at the end of Episode 18, I said that this episode would discuss in a more detailed manner the mothers about whom the sons of Helaman said, quote, We do not doubt our mothers knew it, close quote, from Alma chapter 56, verse 48. We will address these remarkable women in this episode within the battle analysis of the very important battle that followed the departure of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's from the land of Nephi. It is the most transformative single battle in the Book of Mormon. I want to express why this was so and how it changed warfare. I love these topics because we almost never talk about them, and yet they are impressively influential and world-shaping. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The important battle mentioned is covered in only a couple of verses in Alma chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, and I quote, And now it came to pass that after the people of Ammon were established in the land of Jershon, and a church also established in the land of Jershon, and the armies of the Nephites were set round about the land of Jershon, yea, in all the borders round about the land of Zarahemla, behold, the armies of the Lamanites had followed their brethren into the wilderness. And thus there was a tremendous battle, yea, even such an one as never had been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Yea, and tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad. Yea, and also there was a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi. Nevertheless, the Lamanites were driven and scattered, and the people of Nephi returned again to their land. And now this was a time that there was a great mourning and lamentation heard throughout all the land among all the people of Nephi, yea, the cry of widows mourning for their husbands, and also of fathers mourning for their sons, and the daughter for the brother, yea, the brother for the father, and thus the cry of mourning was heard among all of them mourning for their kindred who had been slain. And now, surely, this was a sorrowful day, yea, a time of solemnity, and a time of much fasting and prayer. Close quote. This battle killed, by my estimate, somewhere around 35,000 fighters. Those are demographically changing numbers. As we will discuss, such losses mean that the armies were very large, one might safely assume that wounded were close to that of the dead, though a lot of people died of wounds in the ancient world. This might give a casualty figure in line with maybe 5 to 10% of the total population and even higher in the male population. These are massive numbers. To provide some comparison, the deadliest war in American history was the Civil War from 1861 to 1865 and that cost the United States about 2% of its population. World War II, the bloodiest war in human history, 
cost Germany about 8 to 9% in population losses and the Soviet Union about 13 to 14%. The tremendous battle of the wilderness was by population losses alone a demographically transformative battle. Mormon gives more insight into the influence of the battle at the end of chapter 28 when he provides two editorial comments. I quote from verses 13 and 14, And thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression, and the power of the devil which comes by the cunning plans which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. And thus we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. And thus we see the great reason of sorrow and also of rejoicing. Sorrow because of death and destruction among men, and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. Close quote. Mormon sees in this battle, and what happened around it, the possibility of a transformation in society. Remember that he is a prophet who wrote nearly 500 years in the future of these events, and looking back on what happened with an understanding of the effects from these causes. I want to give a quote from a Vietnam War book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. A portion of this book was made into a 2002 movie titled We Were Soldiers. The movie addresses only one of two battles discussed in detail in the book, this quote comes from the second battle, which took place near a clearing in the South Vietnamese highlands, referred to as LZ, or Landing Zone, Albany, in November 1965. I quote, Within a span of perhaps 20 minutes, everyone around me was dead or wounded, except me. You have to understand that in our area, the elephant grass was chest high, once you hit the dirt, your world was about as big as a dining room table. Your world was completely confined to that area and the six or seven men around you. At that point, we were isolated. Alpha Company was in the same shape. Then the North Vietnamese swept through. I believe they came between Alpha and our company and began to shoot people. We didn't know if the noise from five feet away as they began to shoot people was friendly or enemy. Often they, American machine gun crews, were firing right into the muzzles of other American machine guns. People were screaming to stop the shooting. It began to have all the elements of a massacre. Nobody was in control because all the officers were to the front and our radio operators had fallen dead on their radio sets. The NVA, North Vietnamese Army, were roaming at will, shooting people, hurling hand grenades, and if they weren't doing it, we were shooting each other. I moved away, napalm falling so close it was making the grass curl over my head. I went to another area, and again I was the only man there who wasn't wounded. It terrified me. I was bandaging up a sergeant when all of a sudden some NVA jumped on top of us. I pretended to be dead. It was easy to do since I was covered with those people's blood. The North Vietnamese gunner started using me as a sandbag for his machine gun. The only reason he didn't discover I was alive was that he was shaking more than I was. He couldn't have been much older than me, 19 at the time. He started firing into our mortar platoon. Our mortar platoon started firing grenades at him and his gun. I lay there thinking, if I stand up and say, fellows, don't shoot me, 
the NVA will shoot me, and if I lay still like this, my own men will kill me. Grenades started exploding all around. I was wounded. The North Vietnamese on top of me was killed. The sergeant was killed. I moved to yet another position, and this went on all afternoon. Everywhere I went, I got wounded, but I didn't get killed. All the men around me were dead. Close quote. This story of chaos and confusion comes from then-specialist Jack Smith of C Company, 2nd Battalion, 7th United States Cavalry. He, later in life, became a correspondent for ABC News. I think this quote is important to appreciate what happens when two large bodies of fighters come into a violent collision in densely vegetated area. It is true that the Lamanites and Nephites did not have grenades or automatic weapons. What was common between the fighting described by Jack Smith and that which I believe occurred in the tremendous battle of the wilderness was that control was poor as no captain or chief captain could see what was happening as small groups each came into contact and the battle swirled across time and space, creating more and more dead and wounded. This analysis is much shorter than most of the others, but this should not dissuade a listener from appreciating the importance of this battle in shaping the Nephite and Lamanite military and conflict cultures. The nature of conflict preceding and following this battle might appear to be from entirely different parts of the planet or separated by generations rather than being separated by only a couple of years. A few facts support this assertion well. Preceding this battle, the leaders of armies coming from the land of Nephi were predominantly Lamanite, and the armies themselves were dominated by Lamanites. After this battle, the Lamanite, in air quote, armies were typically led by Nephite dissenters, and the majority of subordinate leaders were also non-Lamanites. Preceding this battle, most of the battles, with any detailed account, were fought outside of a city or in the open field. Nineteen of twenty-two in the open field, and only three of twenty-two were defenses or assaults of cities. Following this battle, and until the coming of Jesus Christ, the numbers dramatically changed to reflect a much greater reliance on the use of defensive works and the use of cities as a defensive position. 27 of 53 battles were defenses or assaults of cities. Something happened here worthy of serious consideration. The record is very scant, as we have already read all that is recorded, so supposition will play a larger role than in any other battles. The context of the results, however, are clear and recorded. Overview of the Battle What happened in the Book of Mormon was an ideological struggle. This should sound familiar, as most wars and conflicts present in the world in the 21st century are also ideological struggles. The fundamental ideological issue motivating the political and legal conflicts in the Book of Alma is whether or not a cultural heritage premised on the existence of a divinely based higher law would be allowed to remain dominant in Nephite society. The tremendous battle of the wilderness happened as a result of the response to what occurred with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and what they went through. I want to address some of the events that led up to the battle. 
I also want to express the character of the people involved in these events. The challenges of the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were addressed in episode 17. The four years between the destruction of Ammonihah and the movement of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's to the land of Zarahemla is the primary focus. The destruction of Ammonihah was addressed previously. Yet Mormon gave additional information on the conduct of the battles between the Lamanites and Nephites, to which I wish to turn now. Zoram II's Campaign Zoram II was the chief captain, and he and his army attacked the Lamanites in the south wilderness. After receipt of guidance from Alma II in his role as prophet and church high priest, Mormon explained that the Nephites were successful in regaining all prisoners taken from the city of Noah after the Lamanite army destroyed the city of Ammonihah. At first glance, it seems like this was a single battle as expressed in Alma chapter 16 verse 8. However, there was more detail given later that leads a reader to understand the desultory nature of the battles fought between Zoram II's armies and the Lamanites. For example, we are told in Alma chapter 16 verses 1 and 10 that the Lamanites destroyed the city of Ammonihah on the fifth day of the second month of the eleventh year of the reign of the judges, and Mormons seemed to imply that the final confrontation regaining all of the Nephite prisoners happened near the end of the year in Alma chapter 16 verses 8 and 9. This chronological appreciation gives an impression that this was a long series of battles in the South Wilderness. Mormon stated that the two groups had, quote, many battles, close quote, and that the Nephites drove and slew the Lamanites in Alma chapter 25, verse 3. Therefore, in my opinion, this was a campaign and not a single fight. The result of the numerous defeats faced by the Lamanites was the destruction of the descendants of the priests of Noah and Amulon. The final destruction of these Nephite dissenters came after they assumed overlordship of the East Wilderness and the native people were put to death for their beliefs. The cruel rule was brought to an end by revolution and execution of the leaders. Lamanite Reactions one result of so many defeats and loss of life was to cause many to turn to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they converted, as we are told in Alma chapter 25, verses 6 and 13. The people of anti-Nephi-Lehi had already entered a covenant and buried their weapons of war. The new converts joined the same covenant and also buried their weapons. Throughout this period, the Nephite missionaries remained with the New Covenant people. Another result was that of anger. Those who wanted revenge or felt bloodlust were frustrated in fulfilling their lust through attacks on the Nephites, so they returned to attacks on the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as expressed in Alma chapter 27 verse 2. Those who were primarily responsible for the attacks are referred to by family-slash-tribal names as Amalekites and Amulonites, as well as other Lamanites typically from the lands populated by the priests of Noah. The familial nature of the contentions was important, as most of the hatreds carried by the peoples in the Book of Mormon record are not personally developed, but they are culturally cultivated and passed on from generation to generation. This was true from the beginning until very close to the end of the Book of Mormon. 
the hatred of all things Nephite was expanded to include the religion that was preached by the Nephite missionaries. The failed attack on the Nephites and the subsequent reaction by the Lamanites to return to attacks on the anti-Nephi-Lehi's was evidence of this view. The Voice of the People In response to the loss of life, Ammon and his brethren counseled the new king, confusingly named Anti-Nephi-Lehi, to move his people to the land of Zarahemla. The king refused as he felt that his people were suffering the just rewards for their previous sins. Only after Ammon prayed and received a positive answer from God did the king relent on his objections. The entire body of anti-Nephi-Lehi's packed up and moved into the wilderness between the Lamanites and Nephites and waited while Ammon and his brethren traveled to Zarahemla to get approval from their people. The missionaries and Alma too, whom they met on their journey to Zarahemla, communicated to Nephiha, then the chief judge, the situation and the desires of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. The chief judge sent a proclamation out to the people, asking their consent. The Nephites consented to give the land of Jershon to the Lamanites and to also station a permanent defense force between the land of Jershon and the Lamanites, as recorded in Alma chapter 27, verses 21 to 23. The people moved from the wilderness and occupied the land of Jershon, and their name was changed by the Nephites to the people of Ammon. It is possible that this was a result of the fact that Ammon was their advocate in the court of the chief judge, and his name was affixed to the proclamation sent out. At least, I think this makes a great story. Military Security Arrangements Clearly, the Nephites had at least a semi-permanent army that they could volunteer to fulfill such a role. The people volunteered their armies as protection as if they had them available to volunteer. The preceding three years between the Battle of the South Wilderness and the arrival of the people of Ammon must have seen the establishment of this permanent force, or the force was already permanent or semi-permanent preceding the destruction of Ammonihah. Mormon is not clear whether Zoram II had to raise an army or whether he had to mobilize an existing force. By the point of the story that we are talking about right now, the Nephites clearly had a permanent military force. The establishment of the people of Ammon in the land of Jershon saw the first identified placement of Nephite warriors in permanent garrisons. This was a trend that was greatly expanded by Moroni. The record indicates that the Nephites defended the land of Zarahemla as well as the land of Jershon in Alma chapter 28 verse 1. The surprise attack against Ammonihah had a significant impact on the security posture of the Nephites as the complete destruction of an entire community would for any society. The departing anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the destruction of the dissenter leaders by those angry with their oppressive leadership seemed to have driven the Lamanites to fits of rage previously unseen. The Lamanites then launched the single largest military assault against the land of Zarahemla in the pre-Christ Book of Mormon. The result was the tremendous battle of the wilderness. We do not doubt our mothers knew it. 
I want to conclude this section of this episode by explaining some details associated with the women who were the mothers of the sons of Helaman. That is an odd sentence. I could also call them the mothers of the 2,000 stripling warriors. I want to explain how amazing these women were. They deserve this detail, and they rarely get it. One of the oddities of the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ is that we regularly have a story about war on Mother's Day. That is when people quote the line that began this part and express how wonderful the mothers were by sharing a story about the exploits of their sons. What about the exploits of the mothers? I hope to provide that now. I believe that these women are remarkable, and on this I wish to remark. This story begins in Alma chapter 23, verses 6 and 7, where the anti-Nephi-Lehi's enter a covenant to become members of the Church of Christ and live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As part of this covenant, they agreed to lay down their weapons of war. Later, as we are told in Alma 24, verses 17 and 18, they renewed and strengthened their covenant by burying their weapons of war. Their covenant so angered the other Lamanites and Nephite dissenters that they were attacked by a force of thousands, and more than 1,000 members of the covenant community were slaughtered. I use the word slaughter because I want to emphasize the nature of war in the ancient world. This was a world of personal violence. People killed other people with instruments of slaughter, sharp-edged weapons as one might use in butchering an animal. It was brutal and harsh and direct. Imagine being a person in prayer as the anti-Nephi-Lehi's prayed as the slaughter commenced and continued, and having people hacked to death in close proximity to you while you prayed. Think about the critical power of communication with deity in being able to face and endure such a horrible experience. The miraculous nature of the experience was such that more of the slaughterers were converted than those who were killed. This is a crucial part of the story, as the mothers in question were among those who welcomed the former killers in as they repented and accepted the covenants already agreed to by the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. That acceptance and willingness to forgive is probably even more miraculous than the repentance and covenants taken by those who committed the violence. After the angry Lamanite army attacked and destroyed the city of Ammonihah, they again attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and this generated another group of converts, who were also welcomed in by the mothers in question. The community was attacked again a third time, where they continued to uphold their covenant and accept the attacks without responding with violence. I want to emphasize, this wasn't one time of religious devotion and commitment to a covenant that cost people lives. It was multiple times over several years. In the ancient world, there was no social safety net. Some communities may have developed a form of communal support, but it was still rare. 
that probably meant that there were very few single mothers in this world, meaning that many of these mothers probably remarried. And I believe that at least some of them married some of those men who had previously attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Think about that. Essentially, men with blood on their hands. But they didn't have blood on their hands, as that blood had been washed away through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This was certainly what these mothers believed. This is a powerful example of faith in the miracle of the atonement, such that they were willing to share their home and the safety and welfare of their children with a man who had previously sought to do harm to them. It was after all of these attacks and the threat of yet another attack that caused the recommendation to flee the land of Nephi for the land of Zarahemla. Once they agreed to go, the people expressed that they would be willing to be slaves to the Nephites. The sons of Mosiah too explained that Mosiah too had outlawed slavery, and no one need fear such an outcome. My personal experience with tribal societies was such that I think these women probably still believed that they would be slaves, and they were pleasantly surprised when they arrived at the land of Jershon to a place they could call home. Again, they were moved to the land of Melek once it was determined that Jershon was too exposed to Lamanite attacks. In each case, these moves were not like the U-Haul moves of today. There was no truck that backed up to their home or boxes or other means of making the move easy. But these people were more like refugees, being forced to bring everything that they had on their backs. Think about all that these women went through. They had every reason to blame their covenant for a horrible situation. They had probably all experienced loss. They all suffered displacement, deprivation, and physical and emotional suffering. Despite all of these difficulties, these women raised sons, and probably daughters, who were able to face life and death decisions firm in the promise that if they were obedient, they would be protected. These boys had every reason to hate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenants made to be a part of it. They could have blamed the covenant for the loss of a father, uncle, etc. They could have blamed the covenant for having to be a refugee twice. They could have blamed the covenant for making their life difficult, and difficult it was. But they didn't. Instead, they saw the covenant as a source of strength. Their mothers promised them that it would be, even though they knew through personal experience that obedience to covenants alone did not offer protection from horrible events. Yet this promise from inspired mothers to faithful sons provided powerful protection. These women were so awe-inspiring that we will talk about them again when we get to the discussion on their sons and the battles they fought. Now, I will take us to the battle that resulted as the Lamanites pursued the anti-Nephi-Lehi's into this wilderness. Geographical Setting Location 
The record says that the, quote, Lamanites had followed their brethren into the wilderness, close quote, in Alma 28.1. What we know of location is that it occurred in the wilderness between the lands of Nephi and Zarahemla, and probably on the eastern side of that wilderness, as the trail of the Lamanites' brethren led to the land of Jershon, which was in the east. As Mormon used the word thus to link his thoughts between the location and efforts of the Lamanites and the fact that there was a tremendous battle, it seems logical that the battle occurred in the wilderness itself, though the record does not make this certain. For the purposes of the title of the battle and the discussion here, it is assumed that the battle did occur in the wilderness. Terrain slash vegetation. Having a battle in the wilderness means that there was vegetation. That said, this shouldn't always be taken as true. The Arabic word for wilderness, as I previously stated, is also a word for desert, and the wilderness through which the children of Israel wandered was not a forested or vegetation-filled wilderness. Quite the opposite. As this battle takes place in the Western Hemisphere, we will assume vegetation was not just present, but that wilderness implied significant vegetation, such that it was difficult to command and control armies in the process of the battle. Like the earlier quote from Jack Smith, this was a battle where groups probably fought in some degree of ignorant isolation. Who was involved? This is the last great battle between Lamanites and Nephites, as relatively pure groups of people. To be sure, the Nephites were combined with Mulekites, and the Lamanites had dissenters from the Nephites slash Mulekites among them. But in a general sense, this was a Nephite-Lamanite battle. The size of the forces can only be suggested based on the loose wording of casualties. Quote, Tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad, close quote, from Alma 28.2, and, quote, a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi, close quote, in Alma 28.3. Much later in our podcast series, there is a more detailed discussion on the possible meaning of 10,000 in the military lexicon of Mormon. But suffice it to say here that it is possible that the number here might not reflect numbers of people, but rather units, Lamanite armies. If it did represent actual numbers of people, then the Lamanite army that fought in this battle must have been between 40,000 to 80,000 or more warriors. This was an enormous force and rivals the largest army of the Roman Republic at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC against Hannibal for sheer size. Based on this possible projection, the Nephite force was comparable in size as Mormon did not provide any information on disparity of forces. If these projections are even close, then this was a battle that may have seen more than 100,000 warriors fighting in a wilderness. It is important to reiterate that a wilderness in the lands of Nephi and Zarhamla was probably a wooded and vegetation-rich environment, and not the desert wilderness of the first book of Nephi. The organization of these forces would have been much like that discussed in episode 18, with levels of subordinate commanders as well as a senior commander. Each force would have employed spies as well, both prior to and during the battle. Key Leaders in the Battle Mormon provides no information on any of the leaders in this battle. There is no information 
of the name of the king of the Lamanites or his identity between the death of the father of Lamoni, recorded in Alma 24.4, and the account of Amalekiah and the murder of the then king of the Lamanites in Alma 47.24. Given the size of the Lamanite army present, it is expected that the king of the Lamanites led the army into this battle. It is possible that the Nephite leader was still Zoram II. The Nephite armies seem to have been a standing force that either began before Zoram II's battles in the South Wilderness or following that successful campaign. Since there is no information, the possible role of Zoram II is purely speculation. Grand and Theater Context I have already laid out the events preceding the battle at the beginning of this episode and in episodes 17 and 18 of this series. Suffice it to remind the listener that the Lamanite army had come up following the departed anti-Nephi-Lehi's, just as a Lamanite army pursued the departing Xenophites decades earlier. It is surmised that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were living in the land Jershon at about 78 BC or the 14th year of the reign of the judges, and this tremendous battle took place in the 15th year of the reign of the judges or 77 BC. I previously mentioned that this was a battle over ideology. The idea that Lamanites could simply change religious faith and be welcomed by the Nephites challenged and offended both the Lamanites and the Nephite dissenters. The actions of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were a refutation of everything the Nephite dissenters represented and to a degree what many Lamanites stood for. Operational Context The combination of statements by Mormon that explained that the Nephite armies were positioned around the land of Jershon and that the Lamanite armies had followed their brethren into the wilderness and, quote, thus there was a tremendous battle, close quote, that led to the likelihood that there was a lot of activities by spies on both sides. The Nephites were in contact with the land of Nephi through the sons of Mosiah too and probably through dissenters as well. The Lamanites certainly sent out spies to scout the trail in advance of their very large army. This advanced knowledge, regardless of how much and how soon it was obtained, was necessary for the size of the battle. Otherwise, the Nephite guard force would have been overwhelmed by the enormous Lamanite force and the people of Ammon destroyed prior to the gathering of a sufficiently large Nephite army. Technical Context Once again, There are no details of armor, weapons, or tactics used in this battle. The possibility of the battle occurring in the wilderness itself would have made large numbers of casualties more likely than an open field battle where an army could be shocked by casualties into a retreat. The confusion and difficulty in communication and command and control, not to mention the inherent challenges of commanding and controlling an army of this size in an era of primitive communications, would make this a series of hundreds of small battles and engagements, where no side would truly understand who was winning or who was losing until the final clearing of the opponent from the battlefield. Such a location and difficulty would also mean that this battle happened over a long time, probably days, and maybe weeks or longer. The use of the singular day in Alma chapter 28 verse 6 could be a figurative reference to the entire period. 
That said, the record does say a day, and therefore all of this could have happened in a day. Tactical chronology. No sequence of events can be gleaned from the record. It is probable that Nephite spies warned of the approach of the Lamanites, and the Nephites reinforced their guard positions along the borders of the land of Jershon and any other areas identified as possibly threatened. As the information was made clearer on location and direction of the Lamanite attack, more forces would have been sent to the threatened positions. In this proposed scenario, the Nephites would have been constantly feeding more and fresher forces into the fight. This might have led to the ultimate breaking of the Lamanite will, as they seemed to always be facing fresh Nephites. Battlefield Leadership None of the commanders at any level would have really understood the details of the battlefield. I refer you again to the words of Jack Smith that began this episode about how such a battle might have seemed to the leaders and fighters at each small element. Neither senior commander or chief captain would have understood what was fully happening as this battle progressed. The terrain and vegetation would have kept leaders at all levels in a state of chaotic ignorance. The U.S. Civil War Battle of Chancellorsville from 30 April to 6 May 1863 is a great example of the challenges faced by commanders in such an environment. Though there was a Confederate plan and strategy at Chancellorsville, most of the regimental commanders fought the enemy they saw in ignorance of the bigger picture. I imagine that this was so in this battle as well, though I don't believe a group of a hundred would have been well-controlled in such a fight. Significance and Conclusion This episode began with the critical significance of this battle in the shaping of the military and conflict cultures between the Nephites and Lamanites. It changed nearly everything. The rise of the Nephite dissenters as leaders among the Lamanites and the change in location of battles and battlefield tactics among the Nephites were two critical ways this battle's significance was demonstrated. Moroni was either 20 or 21 years old at the time of this battle, assuming that he took command immediately preceding the Battle of Manti, and that was done when he was 25 years old. Given the sheer size of the Nephite army, it was likely that he participated in the tremendous battle of the wilderness and learned from this battle, though admittedly this is all supposition. He was the one that fortified cities and provided complex armor for individual soldiers. The idea of fortifications is, and has been, to allow a smaller force to defend a position against a larger force. The greater the danger of attack, the stronger the fortifications were made. Both sides suffered grievously from this battle. For a pre-industrial society to lose casualties of this magnitude, there must have been a significant change to the personality of the culture how they saw themselves and the world around them. Moroni's radical departure from previous practice showed that he, at least, felt there needed to be a different way for the Nephites to fight. Innovation is almost always derived from need. It's the whole necessity is the mother of invention thing. Moroni commanded an army in a society with a significantly reduced manpower pool, and he needed to be innovative to solve this dilemma. The Lamanites learned their lesson. 
they did not want to go to war with the Nephites again. In the 18th year of the reign of the judges, another Lamanite army attacked. This time, the army only consisted of thousands, as we are told in Alma chapters 43 and 44. This battle happened four years later and only after the dissension of the Zoramites provided additional manpower and incentive for Lamanite hatred. Less than two years after that, Amalickiah had to force the Lamanites through deception, well-developed propaganda, and coercion to go back to war with the Nephites. The efforts of Alma II and his family and associates in teaching the gospel to the Zoramites was explained in episode 9 when we discussed Antichrist, and the effort was described as an attempt to prevent Zoramite dissension. The loss of Nephite fighting age men played a shaping role in religious activities as well as the political and military organization and innovation. Nephite socio-political intercourse did not remain the same after the tremendous battle of the wilderness. The next episode will probably be the longest episode in the podcast series as we will finally introduce Moroni and cover in detail the most detailed battle in the entire Book of Mormon record, the Battle of Manti, or for the sake of naming conventions, the First Battle of Manti. This is the battle narrative for Mormon. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.